Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-list of food writers. It's about life, it's about culture, it's about politics, all through the prism of food. And this week I'm cycling around Britain in search of the best breakfasts with Guardian writer and author Felicity Cloak. I was going to go to the world's biggest baked bean factory, which is in Wigan. Um, but unfortunately, COVID put pay to that plan. And someone on Twitter said, you need to go to Captain Beanie's uh, Baked Bean Museum of Excellence in Port Albert. After years of Brexit, COVID conspiracies and Partygate, Britain has never been such a divided nation. And Felicity has prized it open even further as she sets out to investigate the biggest divide of them all, red sauce or brown. I asked her if it was actually a very clever metaphor. Well, actually, this book was actually, um, it was conceived before COVID was even a glimmer in anyone's worst nightmares. I was meant to do it in 2020, for obvious reasons that didn't happen. But already by then, even before the pandemic, um, felt like the country was seeming increasingly fractured and um, bad-tempered and divided. And genuinely, I know it sounds glib, but I do think that arguing about breakfast is one of the things that brings us together. And you don't have to be a foodie, you don't have to eat out a lot, you don't have to be able to cook to have an opinion about breakfast, but particularly about breakfast condiments. And I just thought it's a really, it's a nice way to bring the country together about something we all feel passionate about, even if we passionately disagree. Absolutely. And it is brilliant because, of course, it is a a journey, I mean, not just 2,388 kilometre cycle (laughs) around Britain over seven weeks, but it is deep into the British psyche. And that's what's really interesting. You've done this before with France, but somehow, because you're talking about something we really know so well. The comedic value of your books is hilarious, but it really, really kind of gets to the core of who we are. We're laughing at ourselves in this book, aren't we? I mean, it's hard not to when you... (laughs) I mean, you only have to look online. You don't have to get on a bike to see how strongly we feel. There's an account called the Fry Up Police that literally is just devoted to slagging off people's fry-ups um it can get quite heated um the language is quite fruity so if you're easily offended don't have a look um but i just met people that were you know either tongue-on-cheek or genuinely felt very very strongly about their particular breakfast and that was fascinating and a complete joy um and i do think i've cycled around britain a lot previously but i really feel like this this helped me get to the bottom of who we are as a country And I liked it, which was good. (laughs) And you did. Bizarrely, you liked it. I mean, I was absolutely terrified for you. Once you'd fallen off the first time, I did not want you to get back on, Eddie, your bike. But you do. And there's this kind of army spirit about you. You know, injuries are uncomfortable instead of impossible. You soldier on. You know, when you get to the hotels, you dry your smalls on the hotel towel rail. I mean, you camp in horrible conditions. There's a portrait of of a British spirit in in you. I mean, you're not just the journalists kind of going around and talking to other people. It's you that tells this story. How much of that are you aware of now? Um, I do recall when I wrote it, um, my editor kept saying, inserting notes saying, how's your hamstring? How's the uh, sepsis on the wrist? You haven't mentioned it for a bit. And I was like, well, you know, it was what it was and it still hurts, but there's no no sense in going on about it. Um, But it was very much. I have to say that Eddie was not the problem. Um, I did not fall off him. 
it was me being really clumsy um, twice. So I managed to rip my hamstring on this book. I was not on the bike. Right at the beginning. Right at the beginning, on day two, like an idiot. Um, in fact, I had to confess, embarrassingly, I was taking a picture for Instagram, which is why social media is very dangerous and stupid. Um, but yes, I managed to fall off a bridge walking and Eddie fell on top of me. Um, so that was unfortunate. And um, but I, I don't know. I just I, I knew that I wanted to do this journey, not only because I'm contractually obliged to do the journey, but I, you know, I had the bit between my teeth. I didn't want to go back and lick my wounds. So I just thought, well, you know, we'll see what happens. And it all worked out fine in the end. And also at the back of my mind, like any writer, I was thinking this will make good copy. People love a bit of misery. Well, I remember you saying that when we were talking about One More Cross On For The Road. And, you know, again, my heart was absolutely with you when you were cycling uphill in the pouring rain. And I knew you wouldn't get to your destination in time because, you know, something had the, the restaurant had closed early or something like that. But you say, no, it just makes good copy. And that keeps you going. You are an absolute stalwart, aren't you? You, you really have that spirit. Um, it kind of reminded me, funnily enough, I was thinking about this last night, I was thinking, what is it that it reminds me of? And it's two fat ladies. Not that you could possibly <laughs> be fat in any way cycling your way around Britain and France and everywhere else. Well, no, I ate a lot of breakfast. But it has that spirit of kind of adventuring into British foods and the comedy of manners. Do you know what I mean by that? I think there's a sort of... Um... There's a vein in Britain that we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we also don't dwell on misfortune. And I just feel people do love a bit of misery, but they don't want too much. Um, and I'm sort of the same. I get bored with my own misery. And it's not glamorous to sort of have all of your worldly clothes hanging on a, you know, a motel uh, towel rail while you're sort of lying prostrate um, watching television and Gaelic. But, you know, that's life. And it's, um, you know, it's very different from my life in London. So I do, I do enjoy the less glamorous aspects as well. And I do think that that's what, you know, it makes up Britain. We are as much the yes. sort of the service station bacon bap as with a sort of Savoy Kedgeree under a silver terrine. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's light and shade and everything. Absolutely. I suppose what I meant about the, the, the two fat ladies things, it's it's a journey into, uh, you know, British attitudes through food. And that's what this book is about. There are lots of there are parallel narratives. There's you on Eddie going around and uh, on your bike and, and falling off seems far more regularly than twice but you know, I never fell off. off I'd like everyone to know I did not fall off <laughs> <laughs> but you do go into a lot of you meet a lot of people mm. you, you have meetings set up and you are heading to those meetings to go deep into you know all sorts of British foods and that's where you find what's really happening the sort of the underbelly if you like of of, of British culinary practice and British heritage you know on the way you you go to some of the places of my heartland. You go to Swansea Market, where my mother grew up, and well, but Welsh lava bread is absolutely central to who I am as a person, you know. And the way that my father cooked it was in oats in bacon fat. And there's this question about how food is central to identity. Wales is an interesting place. When I was growing up in Wales, that was when the language was being brought back. And there was all that stuff about holiday homes, i.e. who lives here? Who are we? But it's food that has really kind of upped its sense of self, isn't it? Is that what you found in Wales, but also as you were travelling around? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm pleased that you're banging a drum for lava bread because I was recently on Radio 4 and everyone else, Charles Brandreth, uh, you know, uh, Nikki Bailey, etc., were horrified by the idea of lava bread and, oh, seaweed for breakfast. I was like, this is really delicious. It's very nutritious. Everyone should try it. Um, but I do think that it's an easy... It's an easy thing because food in general is always something that everyone can get behind. They can share. They can at least try um, something. Something like Welsh language is obviously quite inaccessible to most, you know, English speakers particularly. Um, and so it is hard to sort of connect with sort of Welsh poetry, Welsh music and things. Or it rather, it, it requires more effort. Whereas it really requires no effort to go and have some cockles and lava bread, to go and talk about porridge, to have a kipper, whatever. It's... It's a very easy way into a culture and it's something... These foods do not tend to be expensive. So they're something that's accessible to everyone and people can feel proud of. And I do... I get that. And it's not even always artisan products and traditional products. What I found interesting, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about it later, but um, how big brands have become part of our national identity in a way that's beyond food and that happens a lot at breakfast time with things like marmite and baked beans and you know red and brown sauce etc and it is something that that becomes you know part of us as people and our national identity in a way that other thing you know we we are much more divided about you know musical taste literary taste etc etc food you know everyone can buy into yeah and it's interesting with the red and brown sauce uh, because actually, you know, ketchup and brown sauce, they're made up of really extraordinary ingredients, aren't they? Yet they symbolise, you know, greasy spoons. And it's the difference kind of seems to be a red sauce. Ketchup is more south and brown sauce is more northern. But, you know, what you talk about is the the ingredients in those sources are a metaphor for you know look deeper there's some really gorgeous stuff to put on your plate if you if you gave british heritage food time mm. is that what you were trying to say with that metaphor you know the the, the red or the brown sauce um you probably go a little bit deeper than, <laughs> than i was um but i do think that it is you know as you say red and brown sauce I wanted it because they are sort of almost the most basic ingredients in our in our kitchen, in our calves, whatever. Um, but they do have this very rich heritage and they are... Actually, ketchup has a lot older history here than brown sauce. Brown sauce is a Victorian invention from the Midlands, although it's very much associated with the North now. But they both have um, roots in the Far East. They both, you know, brown sauce contains a lot of tamarind. Ketchup traditionally has lots of spices in it. So there's slightly more than they might seem. And I think that is true about many of the ingredients in our plate. You know, you look at a sausage and you just think it's a sausage, but it's never just a sausage. You know, it's got roots to Roman puddings. And we I think there's probably it's probably about 15 different regional varieties of sausage in this country. And we just don't give ourselves credit for that. Um and we think, oh, you know, the French are always, you know, their charcuterie, etc. We've got a really rich heritage in this country. Um, but because we think that talking about food is quite pretentious, we don't tend to celebrate it. But we do celebrate our breakfast. So I feel that's a good way in to sort of recognising our culinary heritage. Yeah. One of the things that I loved about what you do, and we're moving into your four food moments now, is you meet the British eccentrics. Um, and your first food moment is Wonderful. The Baked Bean Museum of Excellence. Tell us about Captain Beanie. Captain Beanie is his official name. 
Yes, it's no, it's not a nickname, it's his official name. I'm actually not a baked bean fan on a fry-up, I have to say. I don't, I've got that Alan Partridge thing, I don't want them touching my beans. Um, but I do like baked beans. And so I thought, and they need to be on a breakfast in some way, shape or form. And I was going to go to the world's biggest baked bean factory, which is in Wigan. Um, but unfortunately, COVID put pay to that plan. I needed to find somewhere else to go. And then someone on Twitter, again, social media has its pitfalls, but can be great, said, you need to go to Captain Beanie's uh, Baked Bean Museum of Excellence in Port Talbot. And I was like, what? On? I thought it was a joke. And I looked it up and I was, I cannot tell you how happy I was when I found it was no joke at all. It's very serious. Um, this guy, um, Barry Kirk was his name originally. <laughs> and um, he has a museum in his own house. It's a council flat in Port Talbot. Um, so you have to book ahead. You can't just turn up because it's an exclusive guided tour in his home. Um, and so I turned up with my friend Martha no idea what to expect and um she was she was a little bit nervous about the experience because you know it's, a, it's an unusual thing to do a, a man that's um changed his name by depot captain beanie we were in there for i think over two hours um it's a surprisingly professional museum but the real star is him his stories his you know he's raised lots of money for charity he is a man obsessed even the loo is baked bean themed um and i just love that he's so passionate and he's really bought into this theme and I thought is that something that you would get anywhere else I know in France they have their wonderful sort of brotherhoods of the you know the brie or the cherry clafouti or whatever but there's something like the the low nick centric like Captain Beanie who's a bit more tongue-in-cheek I think is so peculiarly British that I it was one of my favourite moments of the trip and I love the big reveal you know you and Martha kind of go in perhaps laughing at him a little bit <laughs> nervously laughing i would say and then of course he takes you behind the curtain and he's done this so well that yes. actually he takes yeah. you by surprise thinking about those moments in one more cross on for the road you know you, you it's a similar kind of narrative in many ways you go and meet lots of people and you talk about food and you're looking at french culinary culture and and culture itself through food but there's a moment in this the, the laugh is harder when, when it's kind of at ourselves. And this there's something very British about Captain Beanie. What's his actual relationship with food, do you think? It was hard to tell. What I found, so I found quite telling. So as I said, this is a man who is really devoted. I mean, he, almost for longer than I've been alive. I think he started in 1985 or 1987. His, this, 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 he adopted this persona, um, started off as a charity stunt and he's just continued with it. And I genuinely think he would say that he has given his life purpose. He said, you know, why would I want to be plain old Barry when I could be a superhero? And it's true, he's a real person in the community. He's recognised. There's been a couple of films made about him. People are like, all right, Beanie, etc. And he goes around in this very camp bean outfit with his sort of gold high heels and a cape. Not every day, I think, but, you know, ceremonial occasions. And it has, I think it's more than just the beans, as our, our feelings about breakfast are more than just breakfast. They're sort of whether northern, southern or working class, middle class, whatever. It represents more. And I asked him when we were in his museum, which is, yeah, as I said, a really slick operation um, for the fact it's in his sitting room. Um, I asked him about some of the baked beans that he's got from around the world. And he had some, I think, Asda chocolate baked beans. 
which was short-lived, sadly. And I said, oh, you know, did you taste a can? He looked horrified. He said, oh, no, 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 they're just from the museum. And I thought, I don't think his interest is gastronomic. I'm not. I asked him. He said he does still eat baked beans. It took him a while after his first stunt. Um, I think he spent 100 hours in a bath of cold baked beans in the 80s. And he went off them for a bit. He says he does still eat them. But I get the feeling it's not it's not really about the beans anymore. It's about what the, what they represent. And the very fact, you know, he is at the extreme end of the spectrum. But I was able to very easily for this trip buy a cycling jersey with Heinz baked beans on. Like that was not a special order. They are available. And I just thought that that's so representative of who we are. That is just really buying into this brand as something that you would want to advertise for free as, you know, this is how much I love them. So although Beanie is unusual... I would not say <laughs> that he's unrepresentative. He's just the, the scale is slightly um, uh, accentuated. Yeah, it was a, absolutely a brilliant portrait of Britishness. I loved it. Something else, I mean, they all are actually, and your food moments are beautifully chosen. I mean, I would have chosen absolutely every single one of them as well uh, and, and a few more. Your second is as the Kippers. I think that this is an extraordinary story about who we are. Uh, and our relationship with British culinary heritage. So Kippers, um, this is a bit sadder than the beanie one. Um, Just so Kippers used to be enormously popular. The herrings, they're cured um, smoked herrings, and they are made everywhere from the Isle of Man to uh, Craster in Northumberland. They used to be made down in Great Yarmouth as well, um, along with the bloaters, which are just kippers with the innards left in. And they were so popular. And we used to eat a lot of oily fish and a lot of herring, a lot of fish for breakfast in general. If you look at a Victorian or Edwardian breakfast book, they are full of everything from sort of place to fish heads, depending on where, where the book's aimed. And we were very enthusiastic. And 100 years later... Come on, you might get some smoked salmon, you know, if you're in a posh hotel, but otherwise there is no fish in our breakfast diet. And I find that sad because even though some of those fish now would have sustainability issues, we are always being told to eat more fish. And a lot of them, these least fashionable fish, are actually completely fine from a sustainability point of view. But almost as importantly for me, they are part of our culinary heritage. And the guy that I visited on the Isle of Man... Um, he is the last remaining traditional smoker of Manx kippers. And Manx kippers used to be a huge thing. They used to be, a, a, you know, um, they used to get shipped over to the whole northwest of England. They used to be, you know, the Isle of Man was a great holiday destination. So, you know, millions of people would eat them. And now there's one guy left doing them in the old way. And there's another guy that does them in a sort of more modern way. But it's not quite the same. When you go into one of those smokehouses... And you see these fish hanging up sort of in this ghostly darkness with these fires set on the floor. And it's just one guy doing it. And he's in his 60s. He said, I'm going to have to retire. This is a young man's job. It's quite physical. He can be there from sort of five in the morning up until eight at night, um, just sort of setting the fires, checking the winds, etc. His son wanted to take over, but went and did some you know, a trial, took time off work as an accountant to go and, you know, learn the trade from his dad and said, I can't, I cannot replace you. One man can't do it. You know, it's it's just not possible. And it made me sad because unless someone takes that business over, which seems to be unlikely, I think they will die and that will be the end of the Manx Kipper tradition. So it's a real shame. Um, And, you know, it says a lot about 
the way that our fisheries have been managed as well, because although their decline, I don't think is anything to do with sustainability, the herring fishery is a bit problematic. Um, and he actually doesn't get his from the Irish Sea. So um, he gets his from uh, the Northeast Atlantic where things are a bit more stable. But it just seems such a shame that we, we so disregard a really important part of our heritage. And I haven't read, I haven't seen anything about, you know, this particular Kipper story. Even though Kipper's what Kipper's from, I think Sky won a Great Taste Supreme Champion Award a couple of years ago. Still, Kipper's, <laughs> even though they were judged one of the best products in the UK, People just don't care. And that makes me quite sad. Smoking is one of those things that has been gentrified. It passes into the artisan tradition, which becomes middle class. And that is a really interesting division. Again, you know, we're constantly talking about levelling up in the news at the moment, you know, but it is about access to food from our land and our seas that is not available to the poorer people. Mm. And those traditions, which absolutely could be available to us, have been passed into that kind of artisan, middle-class food culture. Things like kippers are not expensive, but they're just not seen as part of the the normal diet. As you say, people are a bit squeamish about them, so, you know, they're seen as an acquired taste, which immediately makes them middle-class because you have have a luxury to acquire a taste. You know, if you don't have much money, you are going to buy the food you know you like and your kids will eat. Um, so it is a real shame because we've got all of these riches, you know, on our on our doorstep on the coast and, and we just don't eat them. And yeah, it's a, just a real tragedy. Yeah. And as with your third food moment, black pudding, you know, our relationship with the pig, you, you compare uh, the Spanish relationship with the pig, for example, you know, a whole pig feeding a whole family possibly a whole community and celebrating it and mm. using every single bit of it. Uh, not so here. Used to be. Yeah. Uh, tell us about what you found with the black pudding. So I I love black pudding. I have to say that I have never eaten a piece of black pudding that I didn't like. Um, so I'm 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 not particularly snobby about black pudding. I wanted to go to Bury in Lancashire and uh, eat, you know, their very famous black pudding. And then again, COVID made that impossible. So I looked around and thought, well, I could go. I've been to Stornoway before. I could go to Stornoway, but it's Outer Hebrides are quite outer. Um, and then I was looking around and reading a few sort of articles, I realised that much closer to my home in Whitbeach in Cambridgeshire is um, some guys making the only pudding from fresh blood in this country. Now, traditionally, black pudding was made from fresh blood out of necessity because it was a way to preserve. Blood goes off very quickly. It's a very nutritious part of the pig. So it's a way to preserve it, um, as is done in most culinary cultures that eat, you know, eat meat around the world. And... Um, these days, it turns out in the wake of the BSE scandal that um, almost all black pudding is made from dried blood. And that dried blood largely comes from continental Europe um, and doesn't, as far as I'm aware, and I'm sure other producers would hopefully be able to tell you differently, but a lot of it comes as sort of volume shipping. It's not, you know, from particular pigs and that have been particularly well looked after or whatever. Um, and these guys are so dedicated that they go, they trained as slaughtermen so they could go into their nearest abattoir and actually kill the pigs themselves and take the blood. And people will be very squeamish about that. But actually the dried blood is procured in much the same way, but it's just got a much longer supply chain. And these guys know where their pigs come from. They know where the blood comes from. And the product is different. As I said, I've got nothing against any kind of black pudding. But here it's got a great richness it's creamy it's more like say 
a French boudin noir, but that would be the tradition that our puddings used to be like because it's the fresh blood that does it. Um, and that really blew my mind because I thought I knew about British food. I thought I knew about black pudding and, I, and I've made black pudding before and I didn't know this. Um, so I just found that absolutely fascinating, something that, again, should be looked into more and just we should be investigating the provenance and wondering why so much blood goes to waste in this country when it really shouldn't. And again, that division, you know, you write about these sort of things in The Guardian, but, you know, what about people who don't read The Guardian? You know, there's that division. <laughs> I believe there are some, yeah. <laughs> How do you get the, that message out there? You know, I'm, I'm, I work with the Food Foundation and I make the Right to Food podcast with young food ambassadors who are on the front line of food insecurity. You know, we're in a cost of living crisis. I'm pondering on what the next episode should be. It's going to be about the cost of living. I keep talking about wanting to do something about connection with the food from the land how do you galvanize what we've got right in front of us to feed people in an increasingly volatile situation we're going to have another pandemic we're going to have problems with climate change we're going to have more and more problems because of the wars all over the world how do you get that message out there um, I think, I mean, it's certainly not up to us writers in The Guardian. I'd say we're preaching to the converted. Um, I think that people that, you know, t- big TV chefs um, can help because people are, you know, much more um, swayed by what very popular people say. But also I think that the um, it's about more food education in schools and not necessarily, certainly not pushing black pudding down people's throats. People don't eat, you know, that for a variety of reasons. But just I- encouraging children to... to you know, be brave enough to try different things. And as I said, I, you know, I can understand why people, you know, that don't have a lot of money are not exploring different foods with their kids because the risk they don't like it is it's too high. You know, I, I volunteer in a food bank. I know that people are very worried, you know, or we'll take the white bread because, you know, my kids don't really like brown. I totally get that. Um, but I think there are some great initiatives for people going into schools to just he- help children be brave enough to try new foods and talk about them and talk about whether they like or they dislike them. And it's fine not to like foods, but trying them is the thing. Um, And I also think that the food industry, perhaps, and then talking about big sort of high street players, should be a little, has a duty to be a little bit more adventurous and not sort of be constantly pushing new avocado trends on us, but thinking about what's closer to home that actually um, is a better price point, is more sustainable, um, you know, is better environmentally, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, if you see something in a sandwich in a sort of um, a major um, sort of high street chain, you are much more likely to try it than, you know, if you just, you know, see it on MasterChef and think that's not for the likes of me. Um, so I do think, you know, it's a, there's, a, there's a, a lot of different players that can help. But we all need to get together to just think about how we can use more, you know, things like turnips and et cetera, et cetera. They're not sexy, but they could be. Look at the cauliflower. Ten years ago, no one liked cauliflower. Suddenly you get it everywhere. So it's just about thinking how can we can rebrand it for the modern palate. Yeah. And bringing those ideas together with waste as well and sustainability. And that leads us Mm. very nicely into your fourth food moment, bubble and squeak, using the best of the leftovers. Again, that calls upon some confidence in the kitchen. Um, Tell us, first of all, why you've chosen that fourth food moment. Well, I'm a big carb fan, so I love bubble and squeak. But also, um, and people may may disagree with this, but the only place that I've ever seen bubble and squeak on a breakfast menu in a cafe as opposed to someone's house is London. It does seem to be a very London, southeast thing. 
Um, and so when I came, when I so I get, did a circuit of the UK on my bike, injuries, etc., limped into London along the Thames, and went to the Regency Cafe in Pimlico, which is just a superb greasy spoon. And they do bubble and sweet. And I just really felt, I met friends there. My dog was there. I felt like I was coming home. And it was just that big comforting plate of sort of fried, you know, mash. Just delicious. I was like, okay, I'm back. And so, yeah, it's sort of a, it's something that I like, but something that represents, again, more than food to me. It's very much a home thing. Yeah. And did you have red sauce or brown sauce with it? <sighs> I was giving away. I actually had brown sauce. So when I started the journey... I'm not really, I wasn't really either, um, which made me an outlier. So maybe a good person to investigate it. I like English mustard on my breakfast. No one ever serves English mustard, so I had to sort of take my own. But by the end of the trip, I'd been trying both of them, trying to assume an identity to become part of my own people. And I realised that brown sauce for me is just more, it's more complex. It's got more sort of spicing going on. It's a bit tangy. Ketchup is a little bit sweet for me, I have to say. I know everyone loves ketchup. For me, it's just, it makes everything taste of ketchup. So I, you know, when they asked me, I was like, brown sauce, definitely. Um, but yeah, a bubble and squeak doesn't need it for me. Just salt, that's it. And what do you think you found? You set off on this kind of mission to find out what this divided Britain was all about through the sources. But what did you find? Are we more divided or less divided than you thought when you first set off? I think less divided, which was good. I mean, there was a lot of things that surprised me on this trip. I thought I'd find it hard to find good food. I thought the cycle, I thought thought drivers would be trying to kill me. I thought the cycle lanes would be awful. And I did think that people would, but you know, particularly in a pandemic, but in general, people would be more suspicious. And in France, you tell anyone you're writing about their food, they give you recommendations or they say, oh, my mum used to cook that or whatever. And they understand it. You've gone from a weird British woman on a bike to someone doing something <laughs> recognisable. And I thought that wouldn't be the case in Britain. But I think because of the magic breakfast word, people were very enthusiastic. And they were just like, oh, really, that's amazing. And then they wanted to tell me about why they preferred it. I asked every Everyone I met along the way what their preference was and everyone was delighted to tell me and often to give a little story about how they liked both of them or um you know why one of the, they'd eat brown sauce with a spoon or etc etc or so you know some people liked other stuff barbecue sauce chili sauce etc butter um <laughs> I mean I always think butter's a good condiment but it it just it it made it made me feel more connected to to my own people because everyone was so delighted to have an opinion about breakfast and I thought you know we are really we argue about lots of things politics football etc north and south but we are basically one really weird little island full of people and that's just lovely thanks for listening you can read the transcripts to the show at jillysmith.com just click on podcasts and do sign up for my newsletter while you're there you can also get in touch on social media I'm at cooking the books with Jilly Smith on Instagram where you can follow my adventures in cookery with Leaths online. Check the show notes and on Instagram for full details of how to get the Cooking the Books discounts on Leaths cookery courses. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>